Well, she was just a little baby girl. But Hua Ping, later known as Lin, was born to an extremely poor family in Fuzhou, China, in 1880. Her family was so poor that they weren't even able to feed her and care for her basic needs. And as a result of their poverty, her parents thought it best, sadly, to sell their daughter, Hua Peng, into slavery since they could not provide for her. And as bad as selling their daughter sounds, and it is terrible, sad, tragic, it, it was surprisingly better for their child than the common custom in China at the time of fathers of four poor families drowning or burying their last-born daughters. In fact, David Abiel, who was a pioneer missionary to China of the Dutch Reformed Church, reported in 1844, which was just under 40 years prior to Hua Ping's birth, that it was estimated that anywhere between a quarter and a third of all female children were killed this way at birth or soon thereafter. How terrible. But thankfully, Hua Ping's life was spared from this unfathomable practice of murder, but instead she was sold into slavery. And after spending some time as a slave, she was later adopted providentially by a wealthy merchant. And her adopted father would later name her Peace Lin, which is what I'll now refer to her because her birth name, Hua Ping, is just hard for me to pronounce. But do you see the good news here? Lin was no longer a slave but now an adopted daughter. She went on to be educated in a Chinese Western girls' school in Shanghai, where she even became, and she came under the influence of other Christians in her schooling. And then later in life, she would be converted to Christianity and even set out herself to evangelize unbelievers in China. What? Uh, An amazing transformation. Praise God for that work in Lynn's life. So Lynn's story, of course, is altogether tragic and happy at the same time. Tragic because she was sold by her parents into slavery. Happy because she ended up being adopted as a daughter and even becoming a Christian later in her life. Now, I don't know all the details of Lynn's life. But I think that it's safe to say that the movement from being a slave to being an adopted daughter with resources and means to be educated and provided for was a move in a much better direction for her, to say the least. And we all see that. And we would never expect her to want to go from a fully adopted daughter with all the legal rights to her family's name and provisions, to want to go back to being a slave. You'd never expect that, would you? We wouldn't. 
Not at all. Because that would be unthinkable for somebody to want to go back to that. Astonishing and foolish, even. Does that sound familiar to what we've been seeing? Of course, we've seen this throughout our series. Enter now the Galatian Christians who were foolishly following the false teachers back into slavery, as we're going to see now in our passage this morning. And turn with me now to Galatians 4 and 1 to 11, where we will see throughout this sermon, former slaves becoming adopted sons, and then, would you believe it, making a really foolish move back into slavery. And all of this, I can assure you all, somehow has something to do with you and me here as well. So let's get into it in Galatians chapter 4, starting with just the first two verses here in point number one. Once they were air slaves, and we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2 now for this. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Two weeks ago, we saw the Apostle Paul give a few unflattering illustrations about the law in chapter 3. You remember what those were? Picture it again. I'm going to remind you. Paul actually likens the law to a prison holding us captive under sin. And also to a strict guardian or nanny telling us exactly what to do and what not to do. Now, in case any of you ever go into advertising, I can assure you that prison guard, super nanny, will not be a selling point for whatever product that you have that you're trying to sell. This is unflattering, isn't it, about the law? But that's how Paul pictures the law. This is, this is a crazy and surprising and shocking illustration. These are illustrations that shock us and shocked the original Jewish recipients and and these Gentile Christians that esteemed the law so highly. But now here, as we just read, Paul adds to the illustration here, not just the prison nannyzilla, as we saw before, but now he adds that these nanny guardians, he adds also the managers of the estate that have the main function of keeping the inheritance under lock and key until a future time. So talk about a real killjoy that Paul is describing here in the law. A jail cell, scolding nanny, and a pesky estate manager keeping us from all the riches and benefits and and bling. Those of you younger people, I don't know. I don't know if in high school if, if bling is, is a word, but keeping everybody from all that good inheritance and things of that nature, that's the law. Let's see it again from our text in verses 1 and 2 so we could, we could see it. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. 
but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. You notice that? The function of the law to limit the heir child's actual receiving of the inheritance until a later time actually makes this child in the illustration with all the riches and goods and inheritance coming to him in the future, since he's an heir, right, in the illustration, in actuality, in practice even, it makes him no different than a slave who doesn't own anything because if you can't get access to all the goods and possessions of your inheritance, then you're out of luck. You, you, don't, you don't got anything. See what Paul's saying here. The law manager guardian is like the 1974 hit song by the Canadian rock band Bachman Turner Overdrive. Does that ring a bell for anybody out there? It does. It didn't for me. I, I knew the song. I thought of the song. Ask Stacy. I was singing it and Googling it and things last night, but I didn't know the name of the band, but I certainly knew the jingle of the song. And let me remind you of it. You ain't seen nothing yet. Dun, dun. Baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. Dun, dun. We know this, right? Paul is like the law served to keep the child heir, which were believing Israelites in a kind of bondage under lock and key to the prison law or nanny manager making Israel no different than a young child heir waiting his inheritance but not receiving it yet. No different than a slave who owns nothing. They ain't gonna see nothing yet. Dun, dun. Maybe we should have had an electric guitar in here, Jeremy, for that. Next time, I'll remember to use that, that prop with you. That would be kind of cool. You want me to do a redo, actually? <laughs> so, so in that sense here, you see... They were no different in practice and experience than a slave who owned nothing because the law's function up to that point was to just point to them to their sin and guilt, not to give them any of these riches and blessings and inheritance and things of that nature. To cause them to long for something better, to anticipate the gospel, for the promised seed to come until the date, it says, that was set by the Father. So I, I say it again, and I remind us what we've seen. The, the law cannot save you, okay? And I repeat, the law cannot save us. It was only meant to point us to what? A Savior. That's what its use was. Let me give you a little scenario now. You thought the air guitar was something. Now I'm going to have a conversation with the law. You heard me correctly. I'm going to talk with the law just to kind of illustrate this a little bit more for us. Okay? So be, got to be creative here. And I know that I can't have conversations with the law. All right? But bear with me. I say to the law, how can I live justly before God? The law responds, <clears throat> and I got to clear clear my voice to use my best law voice here. The law responds and says, by keeping God's law. I respond, well, what is the law? The law then responds again, you shall not covet, steal, kill. You shall not eat this and you shall 
not do this on the Sabbath. You must cut your hair this way, observe this holy day, only eat this certain food, be circumcised on the eighth day, and so on and so forth. And 600 and some odd laws later, it tells us a lot. So I reply again, but I have not been perfect, law. I've coveted. I've harvested hateful thoughts. And I just ate bacon yesterday. True story, yesterday morning I had bacon and eggs. Literally, I worked all Sabbath day yesterday on this sermon, right? Sabbath is Saturday. Worked all day long. I've broken God's commandments. The law replies to me, then you stand guilty and will be judged by the law, by me. I reply in terror. But what can I do to avoid this? The law says, keep the law. I reply again in anguish, but I can't keep the whole law perfectly. The law replies, condemned. Do you see the bondage in that? And if you think I'm a little crazy for coming up with a scenario of having a hypothetical conversation with an inanimate law, well, I may be crazy, okay, but hang in there with me. I bring in the great German reformer Martin Luther, who also spoke regularly to the law when he said this, the law ought to be honored, but when it is the matter of justification before God, Paul had to speak despairingly of the law. Because the law has nothing to do with justification or how we're made right with God. If it, talking about the law, if the law thrusts its nose into the business of justification, we must talk harshly to the law and keep it in its place. So taking Luther's advice, I respond harshly to the law. Law, you have told me that I'm a wicked sinner, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. But I have Christ, who has kept the law perfectly on my behalf. You see, the law was never meant to save in the first place, but to reveal that you needed the saving. As Luther put it, the law of Moses deals with mundane matters. It holds the mirror to the evil which is in the world and in your own heart. I add that. By revealing the evil that is in us, it creates a longing in the heart for the better things of God. The law forces us into the arms of Christ. Luther concludes and says, insofar as the law impels us to Christ, it renders excellent service. So in these three unflattering illustrations, Paul is showing us in the prison, in the harsh nanny, and in the stingy manager, that the error of the law was simply not as pleasant, I think that's obvious to put it lightly, as what was going to come when the fullness of time arrived. It created an appetite. It created a longing. It created to make, it wanted to make us desperate for Christ. Do you see that that is the good use of the law? Now, believers today 
or not this heir child in the illustration we saw in the first two verses? Who, who is in view? Of course, the child here pictures Israel prior to the time of Christ after the giving of the law. So that time from the giving of the Mosaic law to the time when Jesus came. Israel was under bondage as heir slaves who would not touch the inheritance and benefit from all the glorious realities of what they had coming to them just yet. The nanny smacks their hand and keeps them in line. The manager says, you ain't seen nothing yet, and just points out uh, the reality, the grim reality that we're all in. And knowing where we stand in biblical history, I hope you can see how helpful it is for us today to avoid the Galatian error. It's like when I was in college. I was in a different context than when I was newly married. And then Stacy and I were in a completely context when we had children than when we were newly married without children. No more staying out late till two in the morning with friends and really being just doing whatever. Sometimes we stay up late now because kids are sick or up in the middle of the night, but we're certainly not running around all the time super late into the late hours with friends and things. I remember in seminary before we had Mariah, uh, we'd be over just last minute. Someone calls at 10 and, hey, you want to come over? We're going to go to a movie here. Yeah, yeah, let's do it, you know, and just flexibility, just do whatever we want, whenever we want. Things are different, though, when you have children. There's a different time that we're in. You see, if we treated our lives as Christians in the historical context like I treated and I acted as if I was in college still or married without children, let's just say our home and our situation would just be a mess because we'd be out of context. We would be really, really not uh, connected with reality. We would lose our place in the ability to joyfully glorify God and all he's done for us, just like if we acted like that, there'd be chaos in the Pelachowski family to be sure. This leads us now to our second point and number two. Now we are slaves adopted. So we saw that we were uh, first once Israel was heir slaves. Now we move on to the reality that we are slaves adopted. Look with me in Galatians chapter 3 and verses 3 through 7 for that. 4 and verses 3 through 7 for that. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And of a son, then an heir through God. So do you see the shift now in verse 3 to a discussion of him, the Apostle Paul and the Galatian readers, and by implication, us as well, if we are Christians today. He shifts the topic from the redemptive historical setting of Israel under the law to the setting of his writing to fellow Christians in the Galatian churches who had been converted from their own 
former slavery to the elementary principles of the world. Did you see that? And look in your Bibles. I want you to follow along in your Bibles and see the connections for yourself where it's at. Look at verse, verse 3 there and, and see the, the, the shift. So Israel in verses 1 and 2 are no different than slaves as children awaiting an inheritance. In a similar way, we, Paul, the Galatians, and us as Christians... We're slaves as unbelievers under the elementary principles of the world. Now, what exactly are these elementary principles of the world? Simply put, these are the godless practices and thinking of unbelievers. Really, all unbiblical motives and intentions and living, which includes, as Tim Keller helpfully points out, all of our idolatry of various kinds, which isn't limited to objects of idolatry, but, but goes beyond simple uh, idols that we would normally think of to idols of our heart, which could t- be tied to a ton of things that you could think of, and maybe some relationships or, or career or your own esteem and your own reputation. We could make idols into many different things. And this is what is in view here in the elemental principles of the world. Look with me at Galatians 2.8 to get a better idea of this understanding. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and then look at the contrast, and not according to Christ. So we see here the elemental principles of the world are simply non-Christian or not according to Christ, unbiblical philosophies and worldviews and living that we had prior to our conversion. It applies to the Jews who were perverting the Mosaic law into a form of legalism that it was never intended to be that we'll see later, as well as to Gentiles or non-Jewish or non-religious pagans who believed all kinds of anti-Christian things and practice all manners of wickedness. Steve Lawson helpfully points out that we were once like Paul and the Galatians before our conversions too. This is where we were prior to being saved. He says, children of wrath and the devil and in bondage, a slave of sin and Satan and under the control of the bankrupt world system, brainwashed, conned, duped, under man-made religious traditions, godless ideologies, and foolish speculation. Gullible, blind fools. That is once what we once were prior to our conversion. But let me assure all of us here today that there is good news because after verse 3 comes verse 4 where we read, and I want you to see it, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. So from the bad news to the good news, the fullness of time is also the date set by the Father that we see in verse 2. In fact, we can go even back to chapter 3 and see that the fullness of time is also pointed to as the time until the offspring would come that we saw in chapter 3 and 19, or the time after the law guardian when Christ came as chapter 3 and verse 24 pointed to. This fullness of time is simply God's sovereignly appointed time when he sent his son into the world. And it was as if, 
as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and I will loosely paraphrase him here, it was as if he allowed mankind to try everything else. To experience all that man-made self-religion can bring us. And to experience slavery under sin and all its bondage. And then after all the waiting and letting man go down that dark road to show us how truly lost we were, God then sent his son. Perfect timing. God's timing is always perfect timing. Now, you may have a hard time believing that at times. When the going gets tough in your life, But his timing is always perfect. And there is no more important time in the history of the world than what we see right here with the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. If that timing was planned, all timing is planned. That's the most important timing. All other timing works into God's sovereign purposes, even if we don't understand it. Jesus Christ was born of woman. We know this, right? As the text says, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. He was a human. Wow. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary in a miraculous way. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh a little over 2,000 years ago as the Son of God became a unique, fully God and fully human person, Jesus Christ divine and human. This is a miracle to behold that we're all really familiar with, if you know anything about Jesus. But the text also says here that he was born under the law. Did you see see that? This means that Jesus was not only born to save his people from their sins by dying as a substitute for them to pay for their sins, but that he was also born to save his people by being born and living perfectly under the law to save them by providing his perfect righteousness to them as well. Have you ever thought about that? We we focus a lot on the death of Jesus, and we should. We're, We're much more familiar with the benefits of his forgiveness and cleansing that his death on the cross provides, and rightly so. He died as a substitute to pay for your sins. But for that reason, because it's so familiar with us, I want to lean in here into Jesus' perfect living and keeping of the law on our behalf, since that's sometimes neglected in our hearts and just in general. Let me tell you something about Jesus. Jesus, as a schoolboy, even as a child before that, and then into his teenage Years, those of you who are teenagers here, think of Jesus here. In his early 20s and, of course, into his early 30s when he would ultimately give his life as a sacrifice. Day after day up to that point in all the stages of his life, week after week, moment by moment, year after year, he was living a life that you were required to live but could never Live perfectly. He was tempted like us, and yet he never sinned. You might be like, really? Never? Not even once? Not even a bad thought? Not even 
a response to being provoked? Never one? No, never. Jesus never lusted. He never had an angry, sinful outburst. He never neglected one of his callings and his responsibilities. He never looked at another with self-righteous judgment. He never gossiped. He never lied to save face. He never drank too much or ate too much. He never pursued worldly riches or gain, though he was tempted to do so. Remember the devil in the desert after he had fasted, tempting him with all the kingdoms of the world? You remember that? All this, yet he was without sin. He kept the whole law perfectly. Jesus batted a thousand. But he not only didn't do what we often so much do ourselves, and that is sin, but he also perfectly glorified God the Father in everything he did at every time. He prayed unceasingly. He studied the scriptures faithfully. He helped the poor, provided materially for many, took the time out to teach, to heal, to pray, and to deliver captives, never flinching to confront sin out of cowardice, or to lead by example, or to sacrifice material comfort for the good of others. He was perfect. Do you realize what that means? He was perfect for you. Every clarifying teaching, every pure thought, every last action that was just, every courageous deed of Jesus Christ are all yours if you are in Christ. He kept the law on your behalf. His life on earth is just as much a part of his substitutionary work for you as his death. He died for our sins, yes and amen, but he also lived for them too. What do I mean by that? He lived a perfect and holy life that you didn't live, that I didn't live. And his fulfillment of the law, as he's born under the law to keep it, is your fulfillment of the law if you are in union with Christ. Remember, if we're in, we are in Christ. We get these things through him. What he did on earth perfectly was for us as well. And all of this work of Jesus, both in his life and death, is all instrumental to save us. I, I say all this to encourage us. He provided a basis not only for our justification and all that he did and the way that he died, but as we saw a few weeks ago, it also provided the basis for our very adoption as sons, our very adoption into God's family. Dear child of God, if you're a believer, all that Jesus did in his life and his death, all of his works were for us. In our place for us. Look at all that he did. You can't take that for granted. I've been touched by stories of adoption throughout my life. Stories that I've heard even in here in this church body. And then in other churches that I've been in in the the past as well. And these encouraging stories of adoption point to the picture of what God does with Christians in their spiritual adoption. David Platt, 
pastor, also wrote a commentary on Galatians titled Christ-Centered Exposition, and he actually adopted the children of his own, and, and his words were stirring, and what I have to say here going forward is not a direct quote from him, but is very influenced by some of the things that he's learned through adopting children himself with his wife. So, of course, in human adoption, parents commit to taking children who are not biologically their own and bringing them into their home as full-fledged children of their own with all the legal rights and privileges as full sons or daughters, they become family. But as we know, because of the challenges in this fallen world, even surrounding the experience of of adoptions in this context in a fallen world, there can be, and oftentimes there's pain and trials surrounding the whole endeavor and, and the whole process, there's, there's, there's difficulties because of the context that we're in. And some people who have experienced adoption uh, say that sometimes an ad- adopted child can struggle with their identity. And isn't that something also that Christians are challenged with as well? Adopted child just needs to be assured over and over again that his or her parents are for them, are with them, no matter what. Full sons or full daughters, we're there for you, we're with, we love you. And you see, Christians also need to be reminded about that as it relates to God as well. And that our identity as believers... As we saw last week, our primary identity as Christians is as justified or adopted believers also into God's actual family. And when we're tempted to doubt this solid rock reality of God's love for us, we can be reminded of this passage, that God sent his only son into the world for us, but then we see in verse Six also, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of a son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit testifies to this reality, as Romans 8 also points out, and it shows and it reminds us of a secure relationship with him as sons as the uh, earthly parents reassure their adopted son or daughter, you are ours. Some of you may look over the chaos of me and my wife and our six kids up front when we're singing and things and picking up one of them and pulling one of their legs out from underneath the chairs and smiling at them, helping them. They need something to drink, even if they're being really crazy. We're going to give them something to drink. We're going to give them something to eat. We're going to love them. We're going to coach them up. And we're there for them because we've got dad. Stacey's mom, we love them. They're ours. Whatever they do, we're going to pick them up. We're going to hold them. They're ours. They are completely ours, and and if you adopt a child, they're yours in that way as well, and if you've been adopted by God, 
God pulls you out from underneath the chair. He picks you up in his arm. You are his as sure as anybody else's is sincerely a child adopted into a family. And even more sure than that, because earthly parents are not God. They're not perfect, but God is God. And he has adopted us. And he's done all these things with his son and through his spirit, not for us to just sit there and yawn and get over it and to, and to forget his love, but to embrace the Father who's adopted believers. We have a secure relationship with him as sons, and this is all the work of our great God, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father has chosen you and has seen fit to put you in the time of redemptive history on the other side of the cross to be secure in the arms of his son through adoption as the son went to live a perfect life and to die for your sins. And God, the Holy Spirit, was also sent into our hearts so that we might be assured. Just as I assure myself, I love you, buddy. Or my daughter, I love you. Sweetie, assured through the work of the Spirit that we are God the Father. We are sons adopted into his family. And can you believe it? Can you believe it? The same Spirit that indwelled Jesus Christ and that as he was in Gethsemane and he cries out Abba Father is the same Holy Spirit that indwells me and you and causes us to cry out Abba Father in prayer this is the Christian's experience Abba is just the Aramaic word for father father there translated from the Greek word father 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 no matter what tongue or nation or language we cry out to God father like our Savior, Jesus Christ cried out to God, Father, in the power of the Spirit. There is intimacy of, with God because of what he did for us. And the Spirit has this role of giving us assurance. And as surely as we cry out to God, the Father, in prayer or in song, we could be experiencing the Spirit's worth, work in testifying to our hearts that we're God's children. That we are born again. The Spirit did that in you, in us, if we're Christians. The Spirit is what caused us to believe in the beginning. It changed our hearts. Did you, did you know this work of the Spirit? All that He's done for you. What a blessing of God's work. All this leads us, all this work of God leads us then to verse 7 when we see, uh, in spite of our former slavery to the elementary principles of the world, we see in Galatians 4, 7, it says this, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We have moved away from slavery, church. Christian, if you're a believer, if you've been saved, you're no longer a slave and has been adopted now like Lynn was adopted out of slavery in China years ago. And we're no longer that child heir, that child in that way, without an inheritance. We are no longer like Israel of old, who were practical slave as heirs without the promise being accomplished yet. We're not, we're not in that situation. Not, not at all. We are fully grown sons now. 
adult children with the reality of our inheritance actually being ours. We actually experience the inheritance now. And with this privileged position in mind as believers, the question then is why would anyone want to go away from that wonderful position? This leads us really, really quickly to our final point. And number three, to see this, why then go back from free sons to slaves or to slavery? Let's see it in verses 8 through 11 quickly for our last point. And it says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Wow. This is serious stuff here. Paul in chapter 1 said that he was astonished that these Galatian believers abandoned the gospel. And then in chapter 3, if you remember, on two different occasions, he called them a bunch of fools. And even said that they were bewitched. Now he adds that he was worried that he may have labored them over them in vain. This is some dark stuff that's going on as it relates to the gospel and their denial of it. He is pressing, you see, in on his hearers to examine themselves to determine whether they believe in the gospel or not. This is a serious appeal, and it applies to you today as well. Do you believe in these things that we've been seeing throughout this series in Galatians about how a man or woman is made right before a holy God? Do you believe Paul's gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Or do you believe something else, some other mixture, a little bit of your works, a little bit about your doing, a little bit about how you could kind of pull up your bootstraps and get it done? If only I was good enough. And Are you going down that way? Do you believe that kind of thing? Because if you do, that's a false gospel. Paul's saying he is worried he labors over them in vain. If they believe that kind of stuff and they continue to, then his work in their lives and his ministry to them would be in vain. Why? Because they would end up not in heaven. They would end up in judgment and hell because of a denial of the gospel. Do you believe this gospel, church? Or has your religious involvement over the years been also in vain? If you're relying on your own personal doing and works to ensure your status before God, then that means that you don't know the gospel that Paul is preaching here. That means that all your religious involvement is in fact in vain. Unless you trust Jesus alone for your salvation. And repent of all that false elemental spirits and things of that. Repent of your wrong views and your wrong pursuits. The problem you see in the Galatian churches is seen crystal clear right here. The Galatian professing believers were following the false teaching of the Judaizers. They were following them backwards. Not backwards in their own personal conversions only, as they experienced, as we saw before. These are ones who received the Spirit. And they've moved from the elementary principles of the world to now be saved, or apparently saved, 
but then they go back to those same principles again, only in a different way. They move back in redemptive history. Paul's like, what is going on? You're, you're, going, you're making me crazy. Why would you do this? It's foolish. They were doing the unthinkable. From freedom in Christ to slavery, why? After all they had in Christ, all that they received, they decided to go in reverse, beep, 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 back up, abandon their freedom, going backward in redemptive history as well. Oh, what a shocking thought. Why would they do that? It's foolish. We can do the same thing today if we're not careful. And even more shocking, in this passage, Paul was equating the Jewish religious practices of the law, like the Sabbath keeping or special Jewish fellowship, Uh, festivals and special commemorative days like Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, these days and seasons and years and all these things, he was equating those with actually going backward in redemptive history with the elemental spirits and principles as well, like the Gentile Galatian pagan thing. All these things are going backward in history and trying to do something else for your salvation that God never intended. There was a season for all those days and seasons and years, And if done in that season, the time before Jesus came, it would have been exactly what they were called to do as the Old Testament shows Israel what they should do. But now, if you go back to that, when Jesus had come, when the fullness of time had come, it becomes idolatry. If those things are done for justification, it becomes just another man-made religion to get right before God that God never intended. And Paul clearly equates even our religious practices with pagan, scandalous, elementary principles. Both of those things are elementary principles. In fact, both the religious and the heathen practices are in the same category, which is unthinkable to the Jewish mind. It's idolatry. It's self-made religion and it's sin. If these professing Christians in Galatia did not repent and turn away from this law-keeping they were actually on their way to hell. If they didn't believe the true gospel that Paul preached to them originally, they were, they were going to go backwards, not only in biblical history and go into a bad place of, under slavery, they were actually going to forfeit the gospel message and salvation. And so will you and I if we revert back to either religious or pagan godless principles and practices of pursuing idols and earning and things of that nature. So just as Lynn from China would never go back to her from her freedom and privilege as an adopted daughter back to her former slavery, we know that that is unthinkable for her. Paul was calling the Galatians back, back to the gospel to not go under slavery as they had already done. The promise of Abraham is seen realized in Christ. And that's the promise of inheritance that we are presently living under, church. And it's the promise of eternal life and blessings that we look forward to even in the new heavens and the new earth. Do you realize that God owns everything and, and he is infinitely more valuable and has more resources than even the rich and famous, even the most rich and famous, And that inheritance for adopted sons and daughters, you and me in this room, if we're Christians, Christians all over the world, Christians in persecuted countries and wartime situations, Christians everywhere, if they're adopted children, 
it makes Bill Gates $130 billion or Amazon's founder Jeff Bezos is $178 billion or even Elon Musk's $224 billion, it makes all that look like that quarter that rolled under the arcade machine. Really? Nothing. All that stuff is going to be gone. No one's taking that with them. But if you're a believer, you have an inheritance. It's infinitely greater than all of that put together. You were once a slave, a slave like Lynn, but God graciously set his affections on you. It said, we were known by God. You see how personal that is. He set his affections on you and saw fit for you to be born in this era of grace. So I want all you believers to bask in the promise that has been realized in the Son of God. And I want every one of you, unbeliever, who doesn't know the gospel, to to jump in on this inheritance bandwagon, not just for the stuff, not just for the resources, not just for the heaven and things of that nature, though those are good reasons to run to the gospel, but because you see how glorious Jesus Christ is in all that he did. If you see that, I want you to believe that. I want you to take to heart about your potential to be adopted. Christians, I want you to take to heart that you are really adopted, fully-fledged and privileged sons and daughters in God. We know this because the Father sent His Son and the Spirit, the Son to live and die for you, and the Spirit to indwell your hearts and cause you to cry out, Abba, Father, in thanksgiving. So let's cry out together, brothers and sisters, and those of you who are not in the family of God, I call you to cry out to God in the spirit of adoption as God is doing a work in your heart with great joy because you truly are slaves who have now been adopted if you believe. We truly are, as Christians, slaves adopted. Let's pray. Father, these truths are too glorious for any of us to fully comprehend But what you've revealed here in these 11 verses are the good news of the gospel that every believer here trusts in and puts their hope in. We just pray, Lord, that you would encourage us afresh. You would make us to see these implications about your son and all he did and how he lived and and all the wonderful things and everything that, that he's done for us to secure for us. Help us all to see that we are sons. We don't have to go back to slavery anymore. And I pray, Lord, right now, I pray for every unbeliever here in this room. I pray, Lord, that you would help them see this good news. Only you can turn the light on, oh God. Only you can open eyes, open hearts. Oh God, would you open eyes and hearts to see this glorious good news gospel? Would you make more slaves who are enslaved to the elemental principles of the world, would you make more slaves sons and daughters, even right now in this moment? We say this in Christ's name.